Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SACS's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Today, I'm pleased to have Dr. Claire De Palma at Emory University as our guest. Claire, thank you for joining the podcast, and congratulations on completing your dissertation and uh, now getting to put that little doctor at the beginning of your name. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Before we get into the work and the career, and we talk specifically about your dissertation, and for listeners, it is award-winning research um, because you were recently recognized with the Dissertation of the Year Award from SACSA, so congratulations on that. Thank you. you. For sure. Can you talk a little bit and tell listeners who you are outside of work? So what are your hobbies, things you're reading, watching, listening to? Who are you outside of the job? Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, I'm a big believer that we are people outside of our jobs um, and outside of uh, what students see from us. So uh, since my graduation in May, uh, I've taken up hot yoga. Um, That has been my new sort of weekend thing to do on a weekend morning instead of writing pages of my dissertation. Um, So I've really enjoyed that. I'm doing 95 degrees, not 105 degrees, so it's not insane, Um, but it just, uh, it feels like a really great way to start the day. There's some kind of contemplative practice and reflection at the beginning and the end, and I don't know, I feel like I've been coming off the mat with little pieces that I want to journal about later on in the day, and um, especially we're starting the new year right now, just sort of thinking about how do I want to be, how do I want to show up in my life outside of work, in my life in work, um, really trying to practice uh, congruence with my values and congruence in all sort of spaces of my life. Wonderful. And I I love how you replaced writing with this sort of self-care because um, the process takes a lot out of us. And so rebuilding afterward is really important. How about if you talk a little bit now about your journey into student affairs, um, you know, into higher education, I guess, in general, and along the way, if you would share who have been some important people for you on that journey. And I, I, I will qualify this and say, I know there are more people than you'll have time to mention. So, <laughs> for listeners, if you're not mentioned, you're still loved. So, um, I'll, I'll that's definitely true. Um, so, I had uh, a little bit of an unusual path into higher ed and student affairs. Uh, I was not an RA in college, I was not an admissions tour guide. Um, in fact, I had very little interaction with student affairs staff in my own college experience. Um, I was a theater major at Northwestern University. They have a very robust student theater program. And so I really did all of my extracurricular, co-curricular stuff working with other students who were on those student theater boards. And then those people interacted with student affairs staff. But I didn't have a lot of interaction with them. So I didn't know student affairs was a thing uh, when I was in college Uh, and I graduated. I knew that I had loved college 
perhaps more than other people. Um, I remember in my first year out of college, my roommate and I uh, in our you know first adult apartment, it was January or February and she was an English major and she was Phi Beta Kappa. She was very scholarly. And I was sort of like, do you just wish someone would assign you a paper? And she was like, no, Claire, no, that's just you. <laughs> um, and that was when I sort of put together that maybe I liked college a little more than other people liked the academic part. Um, and that there was something to this sort of learner role that I just really connected to um, in a way that other people maybe hadn't. Um, so uh, I worked in a variety of fields for the first 10 years out of college. I worked in nonprofit arts organizations. I uh, worked in Groupon and customer service in the early years, which was rough. <laughs> I uh, planned events and uh, worked at a cooking school. I taught high school uh, theater and English for two years in a small private school outside of Pittsburgh. Um, and all of these experiences, anytime there was a career transition, I was looking at jobs at colleges and universities and trying to make my way in. And I found that it was this sort of closed loop because I didn't have experience. I couldn't get a job because I couldn't get a job. I couldn't get experience. And I just kept thinking to myself, I really believe that this is the right environment for me, the right workplace for me, but I don't know how to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And then in 2014, uh, I had moved out to the Bay Area with my now husband and for a job that he was taking there. And I thought, I'll try it again. Um, and I applied for a job uh, at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford. And my who would become my boss, uh, Courtney Payne, definitely like an early mentor for me in higher ed and student affairs. She had also gone to Northwestern. So I think that my resume sort of popped out a little bit. Um, and we had a phone interview like the day after she contacted me because I was coming in right at the end of her interview process for a coordinator level role in her office. Um, the student life office at the GSB there. And at the end of our phone interview, she said to me, this isn't the kind of thing that I say to candidates and I don't know what else you're looking for, but you really belong in higher ed and student affairs. You should be looking for other jobs like this one, whether if this one doesn't end up working out for you. Mm -hmm. And I got off that phone call and I was like, I knew it. I knew it. Like I have been thinking this this whole time. And it was it was just really uh, amazing to get that kind of affirmation from someone in an interview process. Like I hadn't even been offered a job or a second interview. Like this was the phone screening stage. Um, but it really it really gave me confidence in my own intuition that this was a good fit for me. Um, and then I proceeded in the process and she hired me and I spent four years on that team, first in a coordinator role and then an assistant director role. And those were really formative years in how I have approached the rest of my career. Our sort of 
mission vision for that office was to create conditions in which every student can thrive. And I carry that with me as sort of a North Star for what I try to do in all of the spaces I'm in in higher ed. Um, how can I create conditions in which all students can thrive? Mm. And different parts of that sentence sort of hit differently uh, in different places, you know, with this research, really thinking about anti-racism and the experience of minoritized staff, students, community members. Uh, I think a lot about the all part of that sentence, all students, all people can thrive in our community. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah, so I worked at Stanford for four years. Then I moved to Georgia and I started out uh, here at KSU, Kennesaw State University in career planning and development, working with an awesome, awesome team, uh, learning a lot about career services because before I had been in a sort of generalist student life, kind of an office at the business school at Stanford. Uh, so I worked in career services here. Uh, and then in 2021, I transitioned to Emory and worked in the graduate school for two years. And then um, last May, right after graduation, I moved over to Campus Life, which is our sort of main student affairs division. And now I work as the special advisor to the AVP of health, well-being, access and prevention. So in our sort of health and well-being space for all 16,000 students. Wow. Well, thanks so much for that. I I have to, I have a comment and a follow-up question. First of all, I, I love, I'm taking notes as you're talking, and I loved your line about, I knew I loved college more than most people. Um, I've never heard it put that way, but I think about so many people I know in student affairs, and that really nails it. I, I think a lot of people are like, when can I get out of here? And then there are a group of us who are like, how can I stick around in different ways? So I love that. And I have to ask, so as a theater major, what are some of your favorite shows, either ones that you were a part of or others in general? Again, probably a long list. Now you're asking the tough questions. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I was a director. Um, so I really love uh, shows that are <clears throat> really interesting from a directorial perspective. Um, which is different than if you talk to people who are actors and want to play that one part. Um, so Arcadia by Tom Stoppard is a favorite of mine. Uh, there are two different time periods that are happening simultaneously in that show. You're sort of watching time travel happen. Um, and Tom Stoppard in general is just like so smart, so thoughtful, so provocative. And I think he's like, the Shakespeare of our time and to work. I've worked on that show before I had that pleasure and working on it made me love it even more than just reading it and or seeing it. And I think for most people, if they're good plays or good musicals, uh, working on it gives you an appreciation for them you get into the bones and like into the sinews and the connective tissue of these works in a way that uh, seeing them or reading them, uh, it gives you a feeling of it, but it's different when you like embody it. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
so I I am partial to the shows that I've worked on. Uh, the shows that I directed my junior and senior year of college are very near and dear to my heart um, because I spent a lot of time thinking those thoughts and hearing those lines and those songs and working with actors and designers in preparation of trying to create a dialogue with an audience about those concepts. I love that. And those skills have to be very transferable to your work in student affairs too. Yeah. A lot of people <laughs> feel like I'm, I made this huge shift, but to me, I feel like I'm doing the same thing that I've been doing since I was 15 when I started directing plays. Like I am working on facilitating groups. I am working on pulling out the potential and the like growth and development capabilities in the people that I'm working with and I'm working on how can we take big ideas and like big constructs and create dialogue in our community and create opportunity for us as a community to move forward uh, with those ideas sort of inciting that. That feels very similar to me from theater to student affairs. So it doesn't feel like a big leap or transition or anything to me. Awesome. Well, thank you for all of that. Um, <clears throat> it helps kind of get, helps us as a uh, <clears throat> community and student affairs get to know each other a little bit better. So I appreciate what you shared. Let's shift to your dissertation and your scholarship. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I'll edit that out, but okay. So let's shift to your scholarship and if you would start, kind of talk about your topic a little bit more and how did you decide out of all the things that you might have been drawn to to study, how did you decide what you wanted to study during your program? Yeah, so uh, I was in the Student Affairs Leadership EDD program at the University of Georgia. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful program. So if you're listening to this and you don't have a doctorate yet, but you feel like that might be in on your horizon. I highly recommend you look, look at it. Um, in that program, we took a staffing class and, uh, you know, it was really about supervision and hiring and recruitment and all of like staffing issues in student affairs. And one of the assignments that my cohort received was to create a proposal for a conference presentation. Um, and the idea was to really have it as much as possible, mimic a NASPA or ACPA or SACSA um, conference proposal. So we were given, you know, the kinds of guidelines that these organizations provide about how to create a winning proposal or a, you know, successful proposal. And so, uh, my classmate and I just, we were paired in pairs or, or trios and my classmate, Dr. Maya Richardson Eccles and I decided that we really wanted to do something around anti-racism and staffing or supervision in student affairs. Um, this was the fall of 2020. So it was very top of mind, uh, in terms of all of these different corporate entities were creating guides to how how to lead and how to manage uh, in light of the racial justice uh, sort of 
uprising and stream of consciousness, I would say, into white ways of knowing uh, that happened over that summer. So Maya and I put together this presentation on anti-racist hiring and supervision practices. And uh, we got a lot of positive feedback from our professor. And so then we ended up um, pitching it to organizations. So we, I was working career services at the time. We ended up presenting at the Georgia Association of Colleges and Employers. Maya was working in housing. So we did it at the Southeastern Association of Housing Officers, CEHO. And then we won Best of CEHO. And so because we won Best of CEHO, we were invited to present at Akuhawai. Um, and we all, they also asked us to present at an Akuhawai or a CEHO, I can't remember, um, like business, business meeting. So we ended up doing our presentation sort of a bunch of different times over the course of that year. Um, and then we also ended up doing a training at App State uh, because someone had attended one of our sessions and really liked it and wanted to bring us in for their housing and residence life staff. So Maya and I sort of took the show on the road and um, one of the prompts in that presentation was to sort of ask white participants to sort of sit back and watch and listen while black and brown participants were asked to complete the prompt, I wish my white colleagues would dot, dot, dot. And we did it as a poll everywhere. And so new answers were always populating uh, on the screen. And I was really struck by the fact that those answers had to do with like, just listen, honor and acknowledge my humanity and take responsibility and hold your white colleagues accountable. And those were like the three big themes across all of these different audiences, different demographics, different kinds of schools. That's what really filled in the rest of that sentence most of the time. <clears throat> and so then when I was sitting and thinking about what did I really want my dissertation topic to be, I felt like there was opportunity for me to dig further into what is that like? What would that look like? Like if we, if I were to do what these black and brown colleagues are asking of me, how would that be manifested? How could I, how could I do that? What would that look like? Um, so uh, with a lot of help from my dissertation advisor, Dr. Marilee Dunn, and um, my qualitative research professor, Dr. Ginny Boss, uh, I started to put together the purpose and the research questions and in the context of a participatory action research design um, around how do white women, and we used that demographic because that's a demographic that I represent and that, you know, I know that experience from a lived perspective. And so I'm gonna have access to kind of getting at those folks. Um, how do white women uh, in student affairs understand and describe their experiences sort of practicing anti-racist uh, practices in their work? Mm -hmm. And just to 
like build on what you're talking about. Um, first of all, as a faculty member, I just want to say sometimes class assignments are really important and lead to being. So, um, want to put that out there, but so for anyone, the the doctoral process is a challenging one. There are lots of ups and downs, and particularly when you're working with a topic that is highly personal um, and sort of layered with different tensions and emotions and things like that. How did you manage those? At, oh, I, I first one quick follow up question. Did you do your program while you were working full time? Yes. Okay. I thought that was the case because that's another layer of managing things as you're going through. So would you talk about how did you navigate the ups and downs, whether it was related to your topic, whether it was balance with life and work and other things? What were some of the things you encountered and how did you work your way through those? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, if there are pieces of your routine or things that you do that keep you going and that you know you need to do in order to like have a successful day, have a successful week, whatever that is, you need to keep doing those things when you layer on your doctorate. And that sounds difficult uh, or maybe obvious, um, but I think that like, so this is a <clears throat> parallel, but kind of same kind of situation. I felt like when I was working at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford, we had a lot of students who had received uh, different kinds of accommodations during college and then didn't register when they came to business school because they felt like they weren't going to need them. Why are you not going to need the same accommodations in business school, perhaps a more competitive program than you were even receiving during college? So if these things are in place during college to help you be successful, you probably need to have them in place during graduate or professional school in order for you to be successful as well. So that's just like a parallel, but I think it kind of can illuminate from a professional perspective what we maybe need to do personally. So for me, working out on a regular schedule is really important to my physical, mental, and emotional health. So I had to keep that routine going during my doctorate, even though I'm working full time and I'm adding class and homework and preparing for my dissertation and all of that stuff, the workout routine can't go because that's essential to my success. Mm -hmm. So my advice for people, for others sort of entering a doctoral program or thinking about it is reflect on what are the pieces of your routine that really make you feel like you, that really help you like refill your cup and come back to yourself when you're feeling depleted and try to plan to include those in your doctoral process. What was the second part of your question? Um, how did you navigate? Oh, and the, the additional layers in terms of the actual content and some of those tensions and emotions that have come up. Yeah, so this was difficult content. Um, as 
a white identified person tackling anti-racism, you know, I had a lot of feelings of who am I to think that I can do this, to think that like at some point in this process, someone's going to look to me like I'm an expert in this and I feel all kinds of ways about claiming any expertise around this. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a lot of conversations with my chair about it. I did a lot, my dissertation chair, I had a lot of, I did a lot of journaling. Um, So she suggested as part of my dissertation process that I keep a reflection journal. Um, And that was one of the data artifacts that I incorporated into um, my research. So I kept a, a reflection journal from basically the point that I started in depth going through my different articles and literature, um, just sort of writing down things that were coming up for me as I was reading peer reviewed articles. And I kept that journal through my defense. Mm. And so I, you know, I had a full spiral bound notebook at the end of all of that, that became part of my data artifacts and helped me, you know, one, one time along the way, I wrote down a little bit of a phrase that then ended up in the final draft of my dissertation or ended up being part of a question that I asked my research team in one of our meetings. And so you're going to have a lot of little pieces of inspiration or insight along the way. And it's important to create opportunities for you to capture that little glimmer of genius or of brilliance when you tap into it and you don't totally know or recognize at all times when that's happening. So trying to capture all of it so that in case it's in there and you can go back and sort of sift through the river rocks and find that little piece of gold, it's, it's worth it. Mm, That's great. And I mean, what a cool artifact for, for you to just have, you know, there's so much that may come out of that down the road in terms of your own. This is where I started. This is where I am. This is where I'm headed. That's, that's wonderful. How did you identify your participants and how did you go about recruiting people for your study? So um, participatory action research typically exists in one local community. And like that's part of what galvanizes the community around um, taking action to address the identified problem. My study is a little unusual in that way or is perhaps expanding participatory action research into new realms post pandemic, you know, in the age of Zoom, in an age of more uh, globalization and understanding of problems that uh, transfer across communities and are not just local in nature. So I did a uh, sort of national recruitment. Um, I posted a flyer in you know, the Student Affairs Facebook and Higher Ed Professionals group. I sent it to colleagues at institutions across the United States and asked them to send to their colleagues. Um, And I ended up with 
a group of folks from really all points across the United States, uh, different kinds of institutions, R1 to community college, uh, early professionals to have been doing this for 30 years. Um, so other than all of them identifying as white and having some connection to woman identity, and I'm gonna put an asterisk on that and come back to that in a minute, other than those two factors, it was a very diverse group of professionals and like different, also different areas of practice within student affairs. And that was really what I was hoping for. I wanted it to be a group that was diverse in basically all ways, except for the uniting identities around identifying as white and having a connection to woman identity. Um, so I'm picking up on my asterisk now. Um, <clears throat> when I thought about the woman piece of this, I we don't have good language to concisely describe uh, what I was hoping to recruit. So I'm gonna do more expanded language right now. Uh, I was happy to have cis women in my study. I was also happy to have people who no longer identify as cis women, but may have been raised as girls or may have identified as a girl or a woman at some time, but now identify in a different way. Um, because to me, so basically I was, I was open to everyone except cis men. And there isn't like an inclusive way of saying that, um, because I wanted participants to have some understanding of what it's like to be minoritized because of gender. And the, this, what Akapati calls the like one up, one down identity of like, I experienced dominance through my race and I experienced minoritization through my gender. Um, and I ended up uh, having a participant who identifies as genderqueer, gender non-binary. Um, they use both of those terms at different times. And it was wonderful to have them part of the process. It added a layer of complexity in the writing because I didn't want to say that I worked with this group of white women because that was not true. Um, and so I, after the end of the study, I had a follow-up with this participant around the complexity that this was gonna introduce into the writing, my wanting to honor their identity and not asking them to pass or forcing them to pass in my portrayal of them in my writing. Um, and, you know, in a dissertation, you need to do a certain amount of like, here's what I'm looking at. And so there's, there's a sort of force toward white women in student affairs as the like area of focus of the study. And I was balancing that tension with honoring this individual's personhood. Mm-hmm. And what did your data collection look like? They were interviews, focus groups. How did you it was over? it was a lot. Um, yeah, <laughs> they were they were everything. I had twenty eight artifacts by the time I was done. Um, so uh, I did a one on one 
screening interview over Zoom with my participants. Um, I We called it a screening interview because if they didn't meet criteria, they would have been excluded, but it really was sort of our first one-on-one -on -one kind of opening interview. Um, so that was 30 to 60 minutes, one-on-one um, -on -one with each participant. Then we did a meeting as a research team. Uh, the six of us all met together for an hour and a half or two hours. Then I followed that with a written prompt for people to respond to individually. Um, and so they had a week to respond in 250 words or less to a short prompt. Then after that was due, we had another meeting. Then we did another written prompt. Then we did another meeting. And then I did one-on-one -on -one closing interviews with each of them. Uh, and then we did a member checks process uh, over email. Then I had what participatory action research calls critical friends. Um, I had two different meetings with critical friends. So uh, I had a caucus of white women and a caucus of black women sort of meet with me to talk about my findings and the research and to lovingly poke holes and ask difficult questions and play devil's advocate um, about what had I missed? What was I not considering? What was my closeness to the research sort of prohibiting me from seeing in it? Um, I then ended up having my first post-study meeting with the research team and that sort of turned into a live member checks process. Um, and then that was sort of the the end. Um, so there were a lot of interaction points. Um, it made data analysis intense. Um, and I really wanted to, in the way that I designed the study, create opportunity for people who were external processors and internal processors, for people who like to um, say things aloud and for people who like to write things down. So I was trying to get at a lot of different ways of learning, ways of knowing, ways of expressing so that through throwing a lot of these different modalities at the process, I could really get the best thoughts and experiences and feelings out of each participant. And given the way that you engaged and built that um, community around your work, are you still engaged with them? Are they still in contact with one another? It just, that's a, a lot of investment of time and energy. And I, I'm just curious if that's sort of carried over or been sustained after the study was done. Yeah, so I've had different amounts of contact with uh, each of them. Um, we met a couple of times after the sort of formal end of the study. And then um, I sort of felt the energy around it kind of shifting a little bit. And my own energy was shifting into, I really need to write this and turn it in and defend and all of that stuff. And so um, I sort of felt like I don't need to push to have this continue to happen. And like, I'm trying to like go with the will and the wisdom of the group basically. Um, but uh, I am so grateful for 
the ways that they shared the vulnerability that they shared in our groups, people really opened up and it was emotional and it was, um, people really talked about how much, one of the findings from the study was that even among a group of people who identify as people who are engaging in anti-racist praxis, there's a lot of vigilance and a lot of shame that we put on ourselves around how are we showing up and um, are we doing this right? And all of the ways that white supremacy wants us to evaluate rightness and um, to break free from these cycles of vigilance and shame is very difficult. And so there was just a lot I think of learning and healing uh, that took place over the course of the study that was moving for me to sort of witness and also moving for me to, in some ways have created the conditions for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's a perfect transition to your findings. Um, if I remember correctly, I think you had four major themes, vigilance and shame being one of those. Can you talk about, you know, so now you've got the stuff and you're making meaning of it? What did you find? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I use the deduce uh, software platform. If you're doing qualitative research, I highly, highly recommend it as a way to help you um, deal with your data analysis. Um so at the end of my sort of initial analysis process, I had like 71 or 72 different um, codes in Deduce and I went old school. I wrote them all on post-it notes and I started arranging them on my kitchen counter um, because I really wanted to see all of them at once and not like on the computer screen. And so I started arranging them on my kitchen counter and they ended up being in about six different groupings. And in those six groupings, there were like three big categories. So it was like, you're at two categories for one theme rather. So these two categories would go for a theme. These two categories would go for a theme. These two categories would go for a theme. And so I started to draw a visual that continued to get modified over the course of the next few weeks. Um, but really what the visual and the data model is about is, so a white person like encounters a racial stimulus, whatever that might be. Maybe that's you are, you know, in your student affairs job and you see a person of color colleague being given different kinds of assignments than the white colleague is being given, or you witness a microaggression, or someone calls you out, calls you in on something that you said that landed differently on them than you might have intended. So the model is about a white person encounters a racial stimulus, and they're gonna respond in one of these three ways. They're going to respond from a place of defense. They're going to re respond from a place of persistence, or they're going to respond from a place of like growth and healing. 
And so the six themes are, or the six categories are really aligned around those three themes. Mm -hmm. And when I went back into the data to sort of do a double check, like, have I missed anything? Um, after I had identified those three big themes, I realized that vigilance and shame were in there in the whole study. They weren't being named overtly because those are the kinds of things we don't necessarily name overtly, but they were always going on. And so I thought about vigilance and shame sort of like a, a volume dial uh, where if you're operating from a place of defense and you're you know, really in that like fear reactive mode, that vigilance and shame is dialed up. You know, it's, it's like this static in the background and it's hard for you to hear anything other than that static. So that vigilance and shame is really dialed up. As you move toward operating from a place where you're sort of persisting, like you can like hear those white supremacist sort of uh, tropes that we've all been taught and all been steeped in in our culture, but you're also trying to do something different, that vigilance and shame sort of is dialed a little bit further down. It's maybe at a mid-level. Mm -hmm. And then if you're at an opera operating level where you're really motivated by connection to other humans and by a desire for healing and that like common humanity, that growth and healing perspective, that vigilance and shame is sort of dialed down and hopefully barely audible in the background. And so in the data model that I created, the visual is like a circle and these three kind of bubbles of defense, persistence and growth are on that circle. And then also on the circle is vigilance and shame and it's sort of strongest in the defense area and it becomes more faded out as we go toward the growth area. Yeah. No, I, I, um, I have your dissertation up as we're talking. And so one of the things, so it would have been easy to write this in an overly complicated way that would be very difficult to follow because you've got multiple things happening at the same time. But the way that you structured, particularly chapter five and embedded implications under each subheading, I just thought that, it was like, here it is, and here's what it means. It was so easy to navigate the information. And so I just, if you want to comment on that, you can. It's just an observation that I had. And as somebody who works with people working on their dissertation, I mean, I think yours is a really good example of taking big, complicated, what could be in the dissertation, very messy information and streamlining it in a way that the reader can keep up with you, right? And it's hard as a writer because you've got all the stuff in, in mind and the act of getting it onto the page so that people can understand and that you're sharing everything. Because I, just from my own experience, it's like, well, people know that. No, they don't. It's just you've been working with it for so long. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think everybody knows it. So I, yeah, I, do, I mean, you have a risk. Yeah. A response. Yeah, I do. So chapters four and five, I, I had started to write some of chapter four and then I kind of ended up doubling back in consultation with my chair because I felt like there's a whole area of this that is process findings. And because it's participatory action research, I consider process as part of the outcome of the research. And so I made this deliberate choice to have a whole section of the findings chapter in chapter four be a process findings section. And I sort of was like, I know this is a little unusual, but I think it's important for people who are reading to understand what was happening along the way and how was that knowledge being created and continuing to evolve along the way. And that like, that's part of this. And I don't want that to only live in me and in the research team because it feels like a valuable piece of the knowledge to pass on. Mm -hmm. So I created this section in chapter four around pro process findings. And then there was also a resultant findings part of chapter four. And then to what you were saying, um, I believe one of the dissertations that I was reading a lot while I was writing mine, which was also a participatory action research uh, study, had done that structuring of chapter five in that way, where it was sort of like, here's the finding, here's the implication, here's the finding, here's the implication. And it just really made a lot of sense in my brain of like, how do we break this down? Uh, and so I stole that idea and was like, I, I want to structure mine that way. And then additionally, we had a section and this was partially inspired by the conversation that happened in my defense, not just a recommendation section, but a like recommendations and then sort of new recommendations. So a lot of the recommendations in my study are recommendations that support like activist and social justice and social ed justice educator sort of literature that's out there in the world. It's not all like scholarly peer reviewed articles, but it's the kind of thing that activists, particularly black women have been saying to us for a long time. So I really wanted to um, legitimize in academia, not to suggest that I don't think these thoughts are already legitimate, but to sort of put the academic support behind these recommendations that already exist. And then also say, and as a white researcher, here are some recommendations I have that are particularly salient for other white identified folks. Mm -hmm. And I just wanna do a quick check-in we may go over 10 o'clock a little bit if you have time. Okay, wonderful. Um, so talking about the implications and both within the context of the document that you've created, how let's talk about putting it into practice. Like what, what do you hope people take away from your work and how do you hope 
it can inform how we engage with one another um, beyond just reading and reflecting on what you've what you've accomplished. So I'm getting ready to present at NASPA Strategies on sort of the way that this work intersects with like community well-being. And then in March, I'm going to be presenting at ACPA also. So I'm taking the show on the road. Um, but the I really have been thinking a lot about there are both individual recommendations and implications as a result of this research. And I think there are community uh, whether that's within your campus or we as a community of student affairs practitioners kind of implications. So um, I'm going to talk through it based on the themes. Um, so from a defense uh, sort of theme, that defense response isn't helping us. It isn't helping anyone. So as much as we can keep doing our work, uh, remembering that anti-racism isn't a destination, it's a journey, and we all have work to do. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that I was reckoning early in the process around this idea of expertise. I don't consider myself an expert in anti-racism. I consider myself a another traveler on the path, another like journeyer who is trying to get better and do better uh, and be more thoughtful and intentional and more growth-minded and healing-minded in the way that I operate. Um, so I think it's dangerous to think of this as a something I have accomplished or checked off uh, because I don't, I don't believe that about the work. So that's sort of a like individual level implication, right? Is like, keep doing the work. Um, the community level implication is, are there policies and practices in your institution that defend oppression or defend domination? And you can think about that in a variety of ways. Like as an example, when I was working at Kennesaw State University, we thought about our standards per, for professional, in quotes, attire in the career center when we're asking students to show up for interviews with external recruiters, what are we asking from them? Is that based on Eurocentric values? And you know, are we requiring things from people's dress or people's hair or people's whatever that are really ways for us to regulate people's bodies in dominating and oppressive ways? So, think about what domination and oppression could look like in policies and practices in your area and try to cast that out of those policies. Um, another sort of community thing is, are you creating time for reflection, dialogue, community building, action planning related to institutional social justice efforts? Like how can you embed time in the lives of your staff members to foreground that. So if you're over faculty, is there time for their professional development in the realm of social justice? Are you creating a social justice book club or other opportunities like that? If you work with staff, um, is there something you as a division could do to um, 
lend support to institutional social justice efforts or start up those efforts. Mm -hmm. So that's a like, those are my implications for defense, for persistence. Um, I think really articulating your why, um, this is the individual level. Why is this work important to you? Why is fighting oppressive systems and domination important to you? What's gonna keep you in it when the work gets really hard? Because it does get hard and it is easier sometimes to say, forget it <clears throat> another day. Um, so what's gonna keep you in it? And I think um, in our current world where our students are very tied to social media and to their phones. And we've seen that sometimes they struggle with different types of human connection or human connection that borders on challenging, like, you know, crucial or controversial conversations or, you know, confrontations, those kinds of things. How can we model for our students that we're going to stay in it even when, or especially when we experience discomfort or guilt, um, when we've made a mistake in response to a racial stimulus, how can my staying in it show them that that's possible for them also? Mm -hmm. um, with regard to growth as implications for practice, like on an individual level, build authentic connections with your colleagues of color and support their racial justice priorities at your institution rather than saying what you think are the priorities. Um, can you create a white uh, community of practice group or a white accountability group? Um, this group that uh, I was part of as this for this research team, it was a really wonderful experience for, I think, people who do a lot of this work to sort of say, sometimes I'm messy in this. Sometimes I still don't do this the way I would most hope. Sometimes I let myself down and I'm trying to forgive myself for letting myself down and get up and try it another day. And that opportunity to be vulnerable and to sort of show that growth in process with your peers, I think was transformative. And I think if we were having groups like this at all of our, you know, uh, historically white institutions, we would be moving the needle forward uh, in really significant ways. So creating a white accountability group is a community action that I would really recommend. Um, are there ways we can embed allyship actions into performance expectations or into other um, pieces of accountability for our teams? Like, can you, as one of your performance management goals for the next performance year, have an allyship action in there? Like, let's make this really actionable and like tied to our performance. Um, and then finally, with regard to vigilance and shame, like I said earlier, they hurt us, they hurt those around us, they hurt our ability to move forward. So trying to become more cognizant of them and trying to cast them out of ourselves is I think my best recommendation for vigilance and shame. Um, but in the teams that we're creating in our universities, 
how are we building teams grounded grounded in trust, empathy, and connection? Because those uh, ways of being are going to destabilize vigilance and shame. Mm -hmm. And what about the research aspect? Are you continuing? So you talked about presentations you're doing. Um, are you continuing the work? I know you've got a full-time job and so you got to do that stuff. What, what are you doing? And maybe even what aspirations do you have that if you're not going to take it on, you hope someone pursues these lines of inquiry? So I didn't read much outside of some pieces in uh, Robin D'Angelo's Nice Racism uh, about vigilance and shame. And so I would really love to see more research into that phenomena um, and like that phenomena in social justice or racial justice work, because I think there's, a, I think trying to disrupt that is a key to like unlocking white folks' engagement and sort of divestment from defensiveness and all of the sort of white supremacist values that we've been taught and been inculcated into for our whole lives. So I would love to see that research go on. Um, I also think if someone were to do a study like mine at a much larger institution so that they could do it locally, it would be really interesting. And the kind of coalition that could be built uh, through the process of doing it on one campus um, and what that could then turn into for continued change and disruption in the organization would be awesome. Um, and then from a, from a practice perspective, yeah, I'm continuing to think about, engage with, evolve my thinking on all of this stuff from the SACSA presentation that I did uh, at conference in Atlanta to these upcoming conferences where I'm presenting. I'm also, you know, right now in the first year of the job that I'm in, but at the point that I feel like I am maybe hitting my year mark or understanding the ebbs and flows a little bit. I would really love to create a white accountability group uh, here at Emory in our campus life division. Um, because like I said, I think uh, the power that the group has to create change is really significant. Mm -hmm. So as we kind of start to wrap up, the last question I feel like is always the most important one, which is what did I forget to ask? Or are there things you want to add? Any closing comments that you have? <clears throat> I guess my closing comment is, I think that for white folks trying to engage in anti-racist practices, we can think that we have to do it perfectly or we have to do big things. And I challenge both of those notions and encourage folks to do small, imperfect steps toward anti-racism, whatever that is. Um, that could be looking at your department's policies and procedures. 
And really reading those documents with an eye toward, does this welcome all people equally? Does this uh, create equity in the way that we're setting up um, structures? Are unhoused or food instable or any other uh, type of minoritized student going to find equal access and ability to engage with our office through the lens of this policy or procedure as another student. And so like interrogate your own ways of doing. That's like one tiny thing. Um, or another tiny thing you could do is try to get to know one of your colleagues of color who maybe whether you admit it or not, you might be less likely to reach out to than a white colleague because you feel like you are breaking some sort of social taboo. And that isn't something that we talk about a lot, but often white colleagues end up being friends with other white colleagues and colleagues of color end up being friends with other colleagues of color. Can you break that and sit down at the lunch table with the other person or create like disrupt these, we're all off to our own corners kinds of ways of operating. So take an action today. It can be an imperfect action and it can be a small one, but take an action toward racial justice today. I love that. Small imperfect steps. I, I That's something that's going to sit with me for a while. I love that. Um, so as we, as we wrap up, one last question for you. What's something that's giving you hope right now, whether it's related to your work, whether it's something in your life beyond work, what's something that gives you hope? I mean, I think the things that are giving me the most hope right now are some of these steps like doing hot yoga every Saturday morning uh, for myself and sort of knowing that that's a sacred space um, where I'm going to have time to reflect. I'm going to have time to move my body. I'm going to, at the end of it, kind of marvel in the fact that I'm privileged enough to do these different things with my body um, and not everyone can. So I guess my sort of thing that's giving me hope that I would pass on to other people is, are there opportunities in your daily life for reverence, mm -hmm. for a moment to sit and reflect and feel grateful for the privileges in your life, feel connected to other human beings, uh, and to then take that spirit forward into the rest of your day, week, month, year, etc. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you again for your time, for your scholarship, for your ongoing <clears throat> work and presentations. Um, I, thanks for spending some time with me today. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks one more time to our guest, Dr. Claire De Palma. Um, I really encourage you, if you're listening, if this clicked with you, pull up her dissertation and spend some time with it. There are 
there are a lot of things that can help lead you lead you to some of those small imperfect steps that that she mentioned. Today's essay today podcast is brought to you by Saxa. As always, we thank them for their support. Check out the opportunities available through Saxa, including new professionals and mid managers institutes and the future of Student Affairs Summit. Additionally, if you have an interest in becoming a more engaged member of Saxa, reach out to VP for Member Engagement, Dr. Kim Bullington. As we close, I'd like to leave you with a quote from our guest today, Dr. De Palma. If all of us now are the ancestors of future generations, what are our wildest dreams? I hope our future is more wildly, radically, wondrously equitable than I can even imagine. They reflect, they are timely and important, and I hope you each invest some energy in reflecting on your wildest dreams. Thanks to each of you for listening. My name is Michelle Botcher, and it has been a pleasure to host this episode. Have a beautiful day.